Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello, Mike. Hello, Ken. Welcome back to Open Apple. We made it to the second episode. We did. How have you been since then? Pretty good. Pretty busy. I am in my last semester of grad school, and I have one class this semester that uh, isn't too taxing, but just on top of everything else that's going on, it it's keeping me busy. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. What about you? Uh, not much. Just the usual. Um, in the Apple II world, I haven't. I've been fairly busy. I've got the blog, and I set up Apple2Scans.net recently, and I guess the immediate thing that I'll be working on is I, I recently picked up a, a Mac Color Classic, and I have this Apple IIe card that I'm going to throw into it. Hmm. So I'm looking forward to doing that today, actually. Now, what is the Apple2Scans.net, you said? Apple2Scans.net is sort of the collection of all the scans that I've made of Apple II documentation and magazines up to this point. It used to be spread out over a couple of different websites, and I decided to put it on a WordPress blog in all in one place. Cool. So what's going to happen to the former sites where those were hosted? Uh, they'll end up redirecting to Apple2Scans.net. Cool. And so this is going to be, I know you've scanned the computist, obviously, but what, what else is on there? Uh, well, currently I've uh, scanned some Apple III manuals, uh, as well as a book by Gary B. Little called Inside the Apple IIe, which is a very popular book mm -hmm. uh, for Apple II technical documentation. Um, and I'm currently working also on scanning the AppleWorks forum magazines. They're actually newsletters from uh, the National AppleWorks Users Group. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are going to appear there as well. Part of my grad studies this semester, I'm taking a course in nonprofit grant writing, which is in the theater education department, which is separate from publishing, where I usually study. And it's interesting to be taking all these classes outside my field because the students there don't know the stuff I expect people in the publishing field to know. Like I was writing an article about retro computing enthusiasts, and one of my classmates read that passage, and she just stopped and she said, what a wonderful phrase. It's so full of whimsy. <laughs> I'm like, really? Oh, okay. Uh, but the reason I bring this up is because I am doing research into the nonprofit preservation of uh, computer history, kind of like what Jason Scott does, just as a case study. And I ended up on the Computer History Museum's website, which we were talking about last month out in Mountain View, California. And they have a magazine, Core. I, I don't know if it comes out monthly or quarterly, but I sent in a membership fee to the museum so I can get their magazine because I figured whatever it's about, it has to be something about the history of computers, which is something that should appeal to Apple II users. So I'm interested to see what kind of articles they're going to have in there. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, on their website, they say they have articles about, let's see, the role of World War II in the growth of Silicon Valley, which is not something I'd ever have thought of, uh, Apple's Macintosh in its early years, and an interview with Linus Torvalds. Yeah, so that should be a good read. And we have another guest joining us this month, hailing from New York City, a two-time Kansas Fest alumnus and staff writer for JuiceGS is Ivan Drucker. Hi, Ivan. Hey, Ken. Hey, Mike. How are you guys? Ivan. It's good to hear from you again. Uh, indeed so. It is always good to hear from you. Now, Ivan, how long have you been using the Apple II? I have been using the Apple II since 1978, when I was eight years old, and I had the good fortune to have a dad who saw the future coming, and he brought home an Apple II one day, and that was, the rest is history, as they say. 
And which Apple II was that? The original Apple II? It was the original Apple II. Uh, it came with cassettes and a cable to attach to a tape player. Um, I, I think he actually bought it maxed out with the uh, 48K memory, which... Um, or I actually, I think, I think maybe it came with 32 and then we added more and, uh, yeah, that was the original Apple II and, and it was a, and I devoured the manuals that it came with, including the one that had all like Waz's handwriting scribbled in it. It, it was fantastic. And then, and then I, uh, had sort of been in the Apple verse for all my life and the, uh, uh, late 90s, I actually went to work at Apple in Cupertino, which was fantastic. And then now I am making my living as a Mac expert in New York with a consulting business called I'm an Expert. Do you get many Apple II clients in New York City? You know, it's uh, funny that you say that. The answer is no, but because on my blog, I have, uh, I, I posted about the method I developed of using, uh, an LC card or an Apple IIe card for the Mac LC, such as the one you're about to put into your uh, Color Classic mic, which I'd be happy to talk to you about at length. So anyway, so I posted about how I was able to develop this method of, of converting two disk images and back with an Apple II, and somebody actually found it and contacted me asking if I could help convert these disks of the software he wrote when he was a kid. And uh, so the answer is oddly, I, I did get an Apple II gig as a consultant in my current day well i hope it's not the last one you have i hope not too they're certainly uh among the most fun now when you were working at apple that was the late 90s well after the apple II had been dismissed what were you doing there so i worked on actually a, a nice succession of products that either never launched or nobody had ever heard of but uh but they were cool products so uh i was uh initially in the uh i basically was involved in quality there for and i was a quality engineer so for example i wrote uh scripts to test the performance of what was to be the copeland operating system which you know um was supposed to be the the architectural next generation after mac os 7 and which was ultimately abandoned um due for many management and technical uh missteps and uh uh, and I also worked on a very cool product, actually, that probably most Apple people don't know about, called uh, a MAE, Mac Application Environment. And what it was, was it was a 68K Mac emulator for users of um, Sun and HP workstations, which in the mid-90s were still, you know, prevalent in a lot of businesses as desktop computers. So it provided users of those computers with a way of running Mac software. And that group ultimately morphed into the uh, group that created the classic environment for Mac OS X, which was sort of the same thing. It was, in fact, a, an integrated Mac OS 9 emulator in Mac OS X, and that was the last work I did there. Uh, the, pro the product that never saw the light of day was Copeland, um, although I think some of the scripts that I wrote ultimately were used for Mac OS, what became Mac OS 8, which they took what they could from the Copeland project to create the Mac OS 8 binder. Apple's dark days. Yeah, it was actually a funny time to work there because, first of all, you didn't really get a sense of how dark it was when you were sort of there in the Appleverse, you know, it's like, you know, everyone you knew used Macs and you loved them and that was that. But in in a relatively short tenure there, I had three CEOs. I had the tail end of Spindler and then I had all of Emilio and then I had the, the beginning of Steve Jobs. Actually, it's funny. Um, it was funny because actually, as you might imagine, during those sort of dark days, a ton of people were, were leaving Apple. And, you know, actually it was sort of in 
a fulfilling sort of emotionally fulfilling experience to actually work there like i didn't real like i didn't realize until i went there for my interview that like this was actually something of a of a suppressed childhood dream to actually work for my favorite company it, it was it was funny i actually kind of felt loyal and even though i think i'd sort of made a decision that i wanted to leave and move to new york or figure out what the next phase of my life was i think i didn't want to work for a company even if it was apple for the rest of my life i did not want to leave when it felt like the ship was going down and uh it was funny as soon as jobs was back like just like one or two company meetings it was like i could immediately feel that things were turning around it was it was i mean sort of what i i think he actually is in sort of a legitimate sense an extraordinary leader that way and so you'd done your job you saw them back into the light and it was time to leave that's kind of how i felt yeah that's 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 right did you work with chris espinoza while you were there no of course his name was legend as was his id badge number um of i think it was eight or three or something like that and um but uh no i i, I never did nor was i connected to anybody who worked on uh on apple II stuff unfortunately although that's not true um in the mae group where i where i worked um the mac application environment group i'm trying to remember his name but the uh the guy who wrote gus which was, you know, an Apple IIGS emulator and, and one of the better ones for uh, Mac OS 9 that was actually developed within Apple and never formally released. Uh, and he was a super great guy, and I can't remember his name now all of a sudden. But anyway, so that was the closest I got to working with uh, um, an Apple II-oriented person. Were one of the developers you were thinking of either Dave Lyons or Andy Nicholas? It wasn't Dave or Andy. It was Jim someone, and I can't remember. Um, he was involved in it at any rate. I mean, I, I I knew those names, and I always thought, you know, uh, oh yeah, shrink it, and you know, all this cool stuff. But uh, yeah, you know, we had some Apple representatives come to my campus when I was a freshman in college, which was back in '97, and I asked them if they knew anything about Gus, and it took them a minute to remember what I was talking about, and then they said, oh, that's just a project being done by a bunch of hackers. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, I mean, you know, as 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 I've noted before, I kind of think that that's the, the the great thing about the Apple II is that it's kind of the perfect computer for if you're a hacker, <laughs> and so it's not really surprising that that would uh, that that comment made. It it also I I should say also that you know sort of my Apple II I've you know I've always sort of had the uh, love of it, but I have not used it continuously over all these years. I definitely you know I I, I used my I, I was basically on Apple II until 1990. That's not to say that I also didn't, you know, use uh, MS DOS and and uh, and and Mac, but they were other people's computers. My own computers were Apple II until I got a Mac LC. Actually, it was the first Mac I got. And uh, but then I was pretty squarely in the Mac world, and it wasn't until really two or three years ago that I unmothballed my my childhood Apple IIe, and that was when I also attended my first Kansas Fest, and now I'm very much back in the Apple world. So I think when I was at Apple, I wasn't thinking about Apple II as, as much as I might have been, you know, if I were there now. And now it's all you think about. And now it's all I think about, and, you know, they're saying I should go into rehab, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty content as I am. I think rehab is Kansas Fest. <laughs> no, Kansas, Kansas Fest is the drug. <laughs> yeah, Kansas Fest is a relapse. <laughs> That's right. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news.
So the big headliner item this month is the Vintage Computer Festival East 7.0. This event is coming to Wall Township of New Jersey the weekend of May 14th to the 15th. Their website, vintage.org, was just updated with all the details about the event. It is not something that you need to register for in advance. You simply show up the day of and pay $15 for a two-day pass. And to speak about the experience of VCF East, we have an alumnus of the event, Ivan. Yeah, VCF was fun. It's uh, It was funny because I went after my first Kansas Fest, and it's actually quite different. So this was in 2009? This was in whenever it was last. So, yes. Oh, that's right, because there was no VCF East 2010. Correct. Uh, it's usually held in September, and they pushed the most recent one back to this coming May. I see. I didn't know that, but that makes sense. So yeah, so anyway, the cool thing about VCF is that you get to see some really cool, old, and in some cases, crazy great condition, vintage computing equipment. So I think when I was there, I'm trying to remember some of the stuff we saw, but we saw like, you know, an IBM large key punch oriented machine that was like in just loving condition, and a PDP-8. But then there's also, of course, the new hacky stuff that people are doing with 8-bit computers as well. So somebody had developed a Guitar Hero guitar interface for the Commodore 64 and had written his own version of Guitar Hero for it, um, which was kind of awesome. And then, of course, there were the Apple II people, and in fact, um, Henry was there. That's Henry Corbis? Yes, Henry Corbis was there. Of ReactiveMicro.com? Of ReactiveMicro.com, and so that was a nice uh, Kansas Fest reuniting. and. Um, and uh, he was uh, selling his wares. And then there was also a guy. Now, Ken, are you familiar with Mouse? Um, he runs uh, an emulated. He, he's written. Did, did you ever use Diversity BBS back in the day or log into any Diversity BBS sites? Not that I know of. All right. Well, Diversity BBS was one of the several BBS software platforms that people used. And it was written by, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure you know Diversity DOS, same guy. And anyway, whatever, there's a there's an Apple II fan, his name is Mouse, and or he goes by Mouse, and he has an online uh uh BBS emulator that you can tell that into. Anyway, he was there and he had an array of Apple IIEs with like twelve monitors and he's written some sort of serial interface so that there was a coordinated display, like you would do a multi-monitor display today with LCDs, except this was all on Apple IIEs. And it blew my mind and I begged him to come to Kansas Fest and 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 show it. And he said it and you know, he, he demurred, but uh that was a very exciting Apple II moment that I didn't get to see at Kansas Fest actually. Um it's a two day event and it I'm I'm you know, I, I went for one day, and that was enough for me, actually. But there's basically one large room of, um, you know, where everybody sort of showcases this equipment. It's, it's more of a show than a conference in the sense that Kansas Fest is a conference. Um, there were performances by 8-Bit Weapon, and uh, I think it was 8-Bit Weapon. One of, the cool, one of the coolest things about VCF, actually, has nothing to do with VCF itself. So it's in this very small, small place called uh, Wall Township, New Jersey, and it is housed in what was an Army radio base during World War II, and that place is now a museum. And the stuff that's in this museum is just fantastic. There are 
part, you know, in addition, there's like all everything related to radio equipment in in military use is there or, or vintage military use, and uh, and and you get to see some really cool old equipment and and also things like um, actual logic components of things that have been in Apollo probes and things like that, and even a bound notebook of source code uh, of the uh, of assembly code for. For launching those things, and it was funny because I was reading through it, and I'm like, "Hey, I, I don't I don't know this particular assembly language, but you know, it looks my experience with 6502 assembly language on the Apple II like, so lent me to uh, recognize it. So anyway, it's a it's a really fun thing to do because you you really do get to kind of travel in a time machine as in as far as uh, computing history goes. Now I have a question about how far back that time machine goes because I went to Vintage Computer Festival East 2.0 back in 2004. Yeah. I I went with Ryan Suinaga, Andy Malloy, Kelvin Sherlock, and Jerry Ellsworth. Sometimes. It was a fantastic time, but the event very much lived up to its name in that it's not called the Retro Computing Festival. These were a lot of computers that predate the Apple II. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. There was there was there was absolutely that there. There was there was sort of the 8-bit contingent, and then there was the pre-micro contingent, absolutely. And that was like, you know, as I said, like sort of the IBM hardware and the and the DEC PDP-8 hardware, and, and there was other stuff. But, oh, there was also an Apple III, you know, but I mean, those, if you go to Kansas Fest, those things are less interesting. Um, in some, well, I should, I should never say that an Apple II or an Apple III is not interesting, but, but yes, you definitely get to see some, some stuff from when computers were really physically large. And do you think there's enough there to interest an Apple II user? It depends upon the Apple II user. Um, I would say that if all you really care about is the Apple II, um, then maybe not. But I would say that there, there was certainly enough there to interest this Apple II user. And, you know, I mean, it's it's getting to sort of see these 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 ancestors of the even like the phones we carry in our pockets today, you know, writ large is, uh, I, I thought, actually kind of awesome are either of you gentlemen going to be there i will not i'm strongly considering it ken i would be delighted if you came i'll go if you go i'll go if you go we're going all right it's a party if you want if you if you want i'm just throwing this out there you could always come down to nyc and crash at our pad for the night and then we could go out and drive out in the morning because it's out in the middle of nowhere as you know and it's not a far drive for you being in New York City, right? Yeah, it's a, it's an hour plus. Oh, that's not too bad. And that's what Zipcar is for. I know Andy Malloy is going this year. He was our guest on the last episode. And didn't Jim O'Reilly also go to the last event? Oh, yeah, that's right. I saw Andy at the last event. I forgot all about that, of course. Andy was there, and that was fun to see him. I mean, it was also funny. I mean, these people are all very long-standing and familiar to you. But for me, I was a Kansas Fest rookie only a few months prior, and... uh and so I was, I was, um, you know, it was sort of great to see the familiar faces that I had met there, but I, I, I still didn't really know anybody as well as you know them. Well, still, it's another, it's a great opportunity to make new friends. It is, and I did. Up next, we have the maximum PCs list of the top twenty-five most important PCs in history. Four of those, um, actually, three, three of the computers on the list, the Apple One, the Apple Two, and the Apple Three, were. Apple computers, and the fourth one was the Franklin Ace 100, which was a clone of the original Apple II. Uh, normally, I don't really pay much attention to maximum PC. I just thought, and this topic has been talked to death on other blogs and uh, podcasts, but I, I thought it was interesting that so many Apples made it onto the list, even if it was the Apple III, which was obviously included on there because of the colossal failure that, that it was. 
What does being a failure have to do with being important? Well, I, I think it. I think it taught Apple Computer some very valuable lessons about how to design a computer as a company because the, the three was the first computer that they designed that didn't come out of a garage with two or three guys putting it together. I think it's kind of funny though that I mean, of course, I'm delighted to see all these Apple products on there, but I think that you know, I mean, the Apple One is, I guess, I guess it's an important computer, but it, it's really, it's really the prototype for the Apple Two, which was, you know, the 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 important computer as far as I'm concerned. If you read through the comments, you know, that were posted at uh, below the article, there there are some machines that were left off, you know, like the, the Amiga, which was a very important machine. Obviously, yeah, of course. For, yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that didn't make the list. And, and like, I think the Franklin Ace 100 was included because because it was a landmark lawsuit against, you know, that, that Apple filed against Franklin, not because of the, the actual importance of the technology and the machine itself. Was it the first clone? I think so, yeah. All right. Well, that's meaningful in and of itself. It's meaningful with relevance to, to what ultimately happened on the PC side of the fence where, you know, Compaq wound up running away with the market for years. Right, because they reversed engineered the BIOS in the, right. in the IBM. Yep. Well, one of those computers, the Apple One, of course, is available from Vince Briel as a replica. Yeah. But there's a new kind of replica coming out, and that's called the Brainboard by Mike Willegal. Oh, yeah. I saw a video he put online where he basically showed an Apple One game being run, and he was the video camera was focused on the monitor, and then after he's played it for a bit, he pans away, and it's actually running on Apple Two. And what he has developed is basically an Apple One on an expansion card that you can plug into an Apple Two that turns it into an Apple That 1. is just fantastic. I love that. Yeah, I think it comes as a kit that you assemble, but he said it's probably the easiest kit he's ever created. He's not taking pre-orders, and I haven't seen a price listed, but I think he does intend to make it commercially available. He will be at VCF East in two months, so maybe we'll hear more there. I, I would hope to. I want one. Me too. Do either of you have a replica one? No. No. You participated in Vince's workshop at uh, Kansas Fest 2009, correct? That is correct. I, he taught me for four hours how to solder together my own Apple Watch. Soldering, I've actually done, I think I, well, there are two reasons I didn't participate in that workshop. One is because I was presenting during it, and two, because I've done my share of soldering and I'm kind of over it. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you might have some trouble with the brain board, because Mike says on his website that if you can figure out which end of a chip has pin one and have a decent soldering iron, you should be able to build the brain well, board. Well, then I would... It would be worth doing. It would be fun to have an Apple One. For whatever reason, I've never personally been that, that, that interested in the Apple One in this because, I mean, I'm interested in it. it would be, I would certainly buy something like the Brainboard to play with it. Um, but I, I, I kind of, I, I guess it's interesting because it's essentially a piece of prehistory. There were so few Apple Ones actually released in the market that, that I think, its influence in and of itself is is really as as a prototype for the Apple II, which is the computer that excites me. But I would I would love to have something like I could just switch into Apple One mode and see what it does. It's but to me it's it's not that that different than say you know uh, wanting to see an early TRS eighty or some other non Apple II platform. Another platform that you can play Apple stuff on now is apparently the iPhone because the FTA, the Free Tools Association, known for their variety of demos for the 2GS back in the day, have compiled those demos into a free iPhone and iPad app that you can download called ActiveGS. Which I have not yet done for some reason, and you would think I would be all over that in an instant. You both have iPads, don't you? I have an iPad, yes. So do I. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, you really should get all over I that. I really should get all over that like yesterday. It's funny because I um actually was like almost – I wanted to get a, an Android tablet just to be able to or, – or phone or something just to be able to play with uh, – what's it called? Candy Apple? Um, and, uh, which I have not yet done, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the idea of portable Apple IIs and emulators, and I originally bought a, a Windows mobile device, uh, in years ago, just because it had an Apple II emulator. I'm like, okay, the first thing that comes out that I can do Apple II in my pocket, I'm doing. Well, this might be your last chance for a while to do Apple II stuff on the iPad, because my understanding is that although the application was, uh, at least ostensibly, designed to be a compilation of the FTA's products, some hackers have discovered that there is a full-fledged Apple II GS emulator hiding underneath the surface. Oh, really? Yeah, so they've been able to enable this functionality, and I'm sure that since this is such a terribly kept secret at this point, once Apple finds out, they'll probably yank that app. All right. I think that uh, I know what I've got on my agenda today. Now, going on a slight tangent here, the iPad 2 was announced this past Wednesday by Steve Jobs himself. Ivan, what's your take on it? I mean, the the, the iPad 2 is obviously a, a meaningful improvement on the iPad 1. And, I, I, I mean, it, it's it's I, I don't want to be facile, but I think that this i'm i'm starting to see how these devices will for many start to replace pcs it's not you know or, or macs or whatever um it's it, it's not going to be the ipad 2 in and of itself but uh you know these these devices create sort of a somewhat more intimate personalized and simplified oops sorry that would be the fta space harrier demo sweet Forgot to turn the sound off on the iPad. Okay. Doesn't sound like it was very hard to get going. Uh, no, not it's not at all. Um, so I was saying that. Uh, sorry. So I was saying that I forgot what I was saying. What was I even talking about? The iPad two? Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. So yeah. So no. I mean, iPad two is cool and 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 uh, it's a fun device and I like playing with it. It's funny. I personally am am. I'm not I'm not a super iOS guy. Like I'm a you know I'm a, like a hundred words per minute touch typist, and it's just hard for me to deal with a touchscreen device. But I can see how I see the way my clients use it, and I can see that it actually personalizes the computing experience uh, in a way even more than the personal computer does. Um, something about being able to actually interact with these virtual objects in in a in a quasi-physical way and in a, in, a, in a very simplified, attractive way um, does make me sort of begin to see these as, as, uh, as the post-PC era as being legitimate. And, and therefore, I do think it's actually an important evolutionary step towards that direction. Now, I have a question about the iPad, regardless of what version, iPad 1 or iPad 2. Mm -hmm. Is there a VNC application for the iPad? Oh, yeah, there's, or there, iOS? There's, there's, there's many VNC applications for it. And in fact, it's a solution I've deployed for several clients with uh, uh, PCs that they need to remote control in particular. And yeah, you, and there's also RDP clients for people who, who have PCs as well. So yeah, you can remote control a Mac, you can control... Um, um, and and you can remote control uh, uh, Windows as well. Can you remote control a Mac that's running Sweet 16? Sure, why not? So you basically already have an Apple IIgs emulator for your iPad then? 
Well, yeah. Well, in fact, I brought to Kansas Fest in 2009. I had an Apple IIe emulator on my iPod Touch because if you jailbreak an iOS device and you install Mini VMac, you have a Mac Plus emulator which can run two in a uh, is it two in a Mac? Yeah, it is. Um, which of course was an Apple II emulator for early Macs, and uh, it works. But there are those who won't want to jailbreak their iOS device. There are those, and they will get so much less out of it. But yes, I can understand that there are those who won't, and there are probably most of them. And therefore, yes, having uh, a way of doing so with a VNC application um, uh, is absolutely something you can do if you've got a Mac running Sweet 16 or you've got another computer running XGS or the emulator of your choice. You can do those things, absolutely. Have either of you actually demonstrated that that functionality works? No, though I can, well, I want to say that I can think of no reason why it wouldn't, and then I also think about my actual work every day where something that shouldn't happen does. Um, so, no, I have not proven it. I can think of no reason why it wouldn't work, but I can certainly find out as soon as we get, I can probably find out even as we're talking. I remember a couple of years ago when the first iPod Touch came out, or maybe it was after the App Store first came out, that Ewan Wenup tried this, uh, exactly what I'm describing, and he was able to boot up Sweet 16 and view the 2GS desktop, but for some reason, maybe perhaps due to the way Sweet 16 intercepts the mouse, he wasn't able to actually interact with that 2GS desktop. Uh, I guess it is possible that if something non-standard is happening, in either due to the limitations of the VNC client, or the, the, or the VNC server on the Mac, which I assume is just the built-in one, um, or the way Sweet 16 operates, sure, any of that kind of thing is possible, and, you know, and, and uh, in which case one might have to use a different emulator if that's the case. I might, I might try to find out right now. You really got my curiosity peaked. Boom. Sweet 16 launching. Boom, boom. Check startup device. Do I not have, actually have a disk to boot here? I must. Um, all right, hang on. All right, now I have Sweet, G is Sweet 16 running, and can I move the mouse? In this VNC client, I can. I'm double tapping. I'm opening things. I'm gonna exit. There. I'm gonna click on. Whoops! 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 I'm gonna have to. I mean, the one issue is, I mean, I think it's gonna depend largely on the VNC client you used. I just went for the first one that was my favorite word, free. And which client is that? Mocha VNC Lite. But in Mocha, and so what happens is, is that rather than, I wonder if there is, um, one thing I really like in the, uh, Mac Plus emulator, the mini VMAC for the, for the iOS, for jailbroken devices, is that there's two pointing modes. One is you tap on the screen and it just moves the mouse to that spot. The other is you can use the whole screen as a large trackpad, which is kind of awesome. And that allows more precision. And that's, I think, kind of what you would want because it's hard to, like, nail the right spots. Now, I had no problem double tapping and opening something. Now, nothing I'm doing is working. Ah, it seems like certain things are working and certain things are not, like where I click. I wouldn't say this is a perfect experience. I don't know. I'd have to play a little bit more with it. It's. I mean, I'm definitely able to make some things happen, but not with the kind of consistency that I want them to. Either it's missing the spots that I'm intending to click, or it's not registering all clicks or something. I'd, I'd have to play with it a little more to figure out what exactly it's doing, and also maybe configuring the uh, VNC client might, in a, in a more strategic way, might help.
So it sounds like Ewan's experience of years ago was pretty much on the money. There are some issues to be resolved in that solution. I think that's the case. I bet they are, my gut says they're re resolvable, but yeah, that's right. Hmm. Another remote Apple II solution on iOS might be to use, I mean, it won't be a 2GS solution, but I would think Virtual 2 should work fine. I could be wrong. I would have to try. But, um, you know, you're not dealing with mouse interaction in quite the same way on an Apple IIe usually. In the meantime, we can just keep hounding Sheppy to write Sweet 16 for iOS. We can keep hounding Sheppy to write Sweet 16 for iOS. I had a funny conversation with Sheppy because, you know, I'm primarily an 8-bit Apple II guy. And I said, Sheppy, what's with there being no keyboard command for reset? Like, you have to choose it from the menu. He's like, oh, I never press reset. And I'm like, wow, that's a big difference between Apple IIe world and Apple IIgs world. Well, for anyone looking for a more seamless experience with the Apple II, they can try the new software A2 Command, which just came out from Peyton Bird. It is a sort of an Apple II unofficial version of Norton Commander, which is an old-school uh, file manager. And what I thought was interesting about A2 Command, as far as version 1.0 goes, is the documentation bounty that the team, not just Peyton, but also Oliver Schmidt and Greg King, have put on this program. Basically, since this is open source, it doesn't come with documentation, and they have invited anybody in the community to write their own documentation and submit it, and one of those, I guess, will be chosen as the formal documentation, and that author will receive a $50 reward for his work. Very nice. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, it's an interesting approach because, you know, it's very much in the open source mindset and it's a crowdsourcing approach to this problem. And it's a great way to acknowledge people for the work that they do with open source. However, I can't help but think that the people who know A2 Command best are its developers. And I wonder what sort of documentation an end user will be capable of. Yeah, I wonder that too. But we will, I mean, that we all know the problems of developers who document and the documentation they sometimes produce, so maybe there's a happy medium there somewhere. I came across this interesting website uh, called Starting the Computer. It's computers and movies and television. Uh, basically, uh, this guy James Carter has gone through, looks like, hundreds and hundreds of movies and just cataloged the, the uh, personal computer bits um, in each one of these. Now, it's not limited to just Apple or or 8-bit micros at all. Uh, it starts, you know, with mainframes back in the 60s and comes all the way through to, to main to uh, modern appearances of, of Mac computers and, and movies. But um, it's neat because you can either go through it by the movie. You know, they have like, say for example, 2010, the year we made contact, has an appearance of the Apple IIc, and if you click on that, then he goes through and he. He, uh, he describes it as Dr. Haywood Floyd uses the, two, the Apple IIc during his preparation for the mission, and then uh, screen caps from, from each one of these, and you can go through and add comments, and there's, there's a lot of good stuff there. Can you also sort through the index by computer? Yes, you can. There's a section entitled Computers where you click that, and you can scroll down through it. They have you know the Acorn, Amstrad, and then under Apple, for example, we have a whole list of items. The aluminum iMac, the clamshell, iBook G3, the eMate 300, and all the way down through the Apple IIs, the Apple III. And, uh, it's quite an extensive website, and it's kind of worth a look, I think. Great. I mean, I have several blogs. One is about the Apple II, and one is about movies. I'll have to go through this directory and see what sort of material I can get for either one. Thanks. Sure. Old or new, it's still cool in retro views.
Welcome to a new segment of the show called Retro Views, which is our opportunity to talk about our favorite Apple II hardware and software, whether or not it's new or old or on eBay or anything like that. And our theme this week is favorite programming utilities, because we have a programmer here, Ivan Drucker, who has created a program utility called Slammer, which I'm sure may be his favorite, but I have disqualified it from his pool of candidates. So, Ivan, what, what sort of programming do you do and what tools do you use to do it on the Apple II? So I program in both AppleSoft and machine language. So the tools that I like to use to, to develop vary depending upon which of those I'm doing and the task at hand, whether it's big or small. One thing that, uh, you know, for programming in basic, I think Beagle Brothers uh, GPLE, Global Program Line Editor, is just uh, uh, a great utility. But then there's a bunch of small utilities that I like, like David DOS had the ability to put DOS up in high memory and then gave you a couple extra commands to search for bytes in memory, if you're, which is a huge thing if you're doing machine language programming and um, or there's also hardware tools like just having um, an Apple II ROM card with integer basic ROMs allows you to crash into the monitor with reset at any given time which is a huge debugging thing sometimes um, there's no way the computer can intercept a, a reset and uh, and then also I like to uh, write my Apple II programs actually these days I prefer to write them in a text editor on a Mac and then uh, put them into an emulator once they're edited. Now, you described that technique in a series of Juice.js articles about, you call it structured AppleSoft, right? Yeah, and, and actually one doesn't preclude the other. Um, structured AppleSoft is a, is a method of programming which attempts to apply the discipline and technique of languages like uh, C or Java, that sort of thing. Um, and um, uh, in, in which leads, I think, to better, better programming discipline and, and better organization in a program, more maintainable code. In order to do that, you also really need to be in an environment where you can freely edit code as opposed to sort of being at the AppleSoft prompt where you're doing it in real time. You can write non-structured AppleSoft code in an editor, but then if you have an editor that certainly affords you the opportunity to write AppleSoft in a way that when you go back and look at it six months later, you say, hey, that's code I wrote that I can reuse for something else or allows you to make changes much more rapidly and comprehensively. Now, since you mentioned GPLE as your favorite utility, that's not one that I've used. Can you give me a few more details about exactly what it does? GPLE is basically an AppleSoft program editor, which allows you to when you're programming live in AppleSoft, which as I said, I don't do that much anymore, it just gives you a whole host of commands for being able to search for things in programs, list, in, list individual lines in a way that's more manipulatable, edit lines, insert things into lines, just in a whole much more robust way than AppleSoft natively gives you. My favorite program utility that I was going to bring up is Program Writer, which is also from Beagle Brothers and also for AppleSoft. It basically turns AppleSoft into a word processor-like environment where you can uh, navigate up, down, left, and right with the cursor, you know, do uh, global renumbering, stuff like that. I wrote a BBS door game for Warp 6 software for the Apple II about 15 years ago. It's still on your site, I believe. Yes, I, I do still make it available for download on a site that I haven't updated in about a decade. And it was called Spaceship of Death, and I don't remember how long it was, but hundreds of lines for somebody who was still in high school seemed like a, uh, a long program. 
and I use Program Writer to write it. But Program Writer sounds a lot like what you're describing with GPLE. Do you know how they're different? Beagle Brother acquired GPLE, which I forgot about. It was not originally theirs, which makes me sort of wonder whether Program Writer isn't something that's designed to uh, accomplish certain similar things. I remember GPLE was originally PLE. Looks like GPLE was originally published by Synergistic Software. I'm reading a description on lostclassic.apple2.info. It says, um, it describes Program Writer, and it said, if you liked GPLE, you'll love Program Writer. So, which makes me wonder if GPLE wasn't an earlier thing. Like a precursor? Yeah, or, you know, I mean, it's not like overlapping program. Mike, have you done any programming? Um, my programming skills are somewhat limited. You know, I, I know my way around AppleSoft Basic, and I can I can sort of follow assembly uh, assembly code because I learned to uh, trace boot code, but you know, for no particular That's not reason. Trivial. For 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 no particular reason at all that I learned that. Um, but uh, I don't do much. I haven't done much programming on the Apple uh, myself. Uh, Ken, actually, I have. Um, I actually now also write my assembly code in BBN or text or text writer. Text writer. Really. Yeah, I, I actually do my assembly language program for the Apple II there, too, rather than using a, a native Apple II assembler because I actually just like the ability to freely edit. I wrote the AppleSoft code module for BBEdit and Text Wrangler that highlights AppleSoft code, and I also wrote one for uh, 65CO2, and both of those are actually now hosted on the uh, languages page on the BBEdit website. Wow, very cool. Yeah. Is there any reason you couldn't use an Apple II word processor to do those things? Um, you mean something native on the Apple II? Right. I mean, no. I mean, of course. I mean, there are... Oh, well, oh, use a word processor on the Apple II to actually write your Apple II code. It's funny, I looked into that, like, what would be a good candidate for that. For the AppleSoft, no. There's, there, there should be no reason why you couldn't do that as long as you had the ability in whatever you're using to save it as an unadulterated ASCII file. And then you should be able to type exec whatever at DOS, and it would just literally type that file in at the AppleSoft prompt. The assembly would still require some sort of assembler, so you would still want to use some sort of assembler program on an Apple II. And you probably couldn't do the sort of syntax color coding that something like BBEdit offers. Not unless you wrote it yourself and you're on a 2GS. Currently, my interest in programming on the Apple II is outside the Apple II itself. It's using tools like BBEdit. It's using uh, open source 6502 assemblers written in JavaScript. It's using... Oh, I would also be remiss not to mention how fantastic a tool. If you are natively on an Apple II and you're programming in machine language, Martin Hayes Supermon is awesome. Um, that's It's a really cool tool for assembly language programming natively on an Apple II. And everything else you've mentioned basically turns your Mac into the best Apple II peripheral there is. That's kind of my approach to the Apple II these days. And I spend a lot of time in Virtual 2 as opposed to on an actual Apple II. Just for the convenience of it being in my lap. If they ever, if, uh, if uh, Little John ever ships his uh, portable 2GS, I'll be first on the block to buy it. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. So let's catch up to speed by reviewing last month's auctions. We had three that we reviewed. 
and only one of them actually sold, and that was Raster Blaster by Bill Budge. It went for the lowest bid of $9.12. The other items, which was a boxed copy of Microsoft Adventure for the Apple II, did not sell for a minimum bid of $3.99, and the Apple IIGS College shirt did not sell for a minimum bid of $4.99 or a buy-it-now price of $7.99. Both of those items are back on eBay. It's the exact same shirt, and apparently, since it didn't sell at $4.99, the uh, seller has changed his opening bid to $5.99. It's actually gone up. And Microsoft Adventure, this is a completely different copy, completely different seller, is not boxed, and that lack of box will save you $100. It is now only $2.99. Uh, there's another auction that recently closed on eBay, and it got quite a bit of press, and that was the original painting for the cover art for the Apple II game Castle Wolfenstein by Silas Warner. I love that game. Oh man, I don't know how many hours I lost to that game. And then and then uh uh Hardcore Computist just ran all these great hacks for it. Oh yeah. And what do they call those APTs, advanced playing techniques? Yeah. Yeah. So the Castle Wolfenstein painting is by John Benson, and it was being sold on eBay by somebody who himself bought it on eBay nine years prior. And it is a painting 27 and a quarter inches by 23 and a quarter inches that basically shows a Nazi soldier with the words Castle Wolfenstein on it. Now, Mike, didn't you bid on this? I was going to. I use a Auction Sniper, which is a sniping program, um, and I had set the amount for $700, but by the time... Auction Sniper went to place the bid for me. It was already well above that. So, Yeah, the auction price sat at around $315 for about 72 hours. And I thought to myself, I'm sure it's going to get higher than that. And about three hours before the auction closed, I checked in. And sure enough, it had gone up to 500 And I thought to myself, it's probably going to get even higher. And I'm going to kick myself if I'm not at least contributing to this historical event. So I bid uh, $515. And it's sat at that price for an hour, which was probably one of the longest hours of my life. <laughs> it was right in the middle of my class, actually. I was in a grad school with my laptop in front of me, and I kept refreshing every minute when I should have been listening to the professor. And finally, about an hour before the auction closed, it went up to 700 and I could breathe easy, but I kept refreshing just to see what would happen. And finally, it got down to the last few minutes when you don't have to refresh. It just dynamically updates. Maybe it always does that, and I never noticed and I think the professor noticed when I just gasped because within literally the last minute, it went from $700 to a closing bid of $2,024.99. Wow. That's pretty intense. What's amusing is that, well, first of all, I don't know if it's necessarily a great work of art, but it is historical, and I'm sure that... No, it's historical, right. Right. But if you actually do like the painting... The original artist, obviously he doesn't have the original painting anymore, but he does have the rights to it, and he sells reproductions on his website. So you can order small prints for a much more reasonable price. And he must be using some sort of automatic uh, printing service that handles this for him, because you can get it in multiple sizes and formats, including a greeting card. I am pretty sure that regardless of context, I don't want a Nazi soldier on my wall. <laughs> And I'm not sure I want to be receiving one as a greeting card. Right. Yes. I, I don't know what message that would be conveying. And speaking of favorite games, Mike, you recently saw Ultima on eBay. And that's still ongoing, right? Uh, well, there are actually two of them um, that I found this month. One closed for $575, I think. Holy crap. Yeah, wow. $565, and it did not include the actual original disc. It was the copy that the guy made. 
It wasn't sealed or anything? No, nope, not sealed, used. Uh, there was another one, and I don't have the URL for that one right now. That one sold for over $600, which did include the original disc and the Ziploc baggie, uh, and it was sealed. These were both the uh, California P Pacific Computer Company versions. I don't know what the, uh, you know, Mystery House was the very, very first uh, online systems later Sierra title, and uh, I don't even know what that closed for. We should look now, but it, uh, I mean, it was, it was well above, I think, $200 when it was still a few days to go. Well, it was interesting. I saw a copy of... Um... Uh, what was it, Sammy Lightfoot? You remember that game? Oh yeah, that game yeah. sucked. That it did, but it, I saw one go on eBay here a couple of days ago for two or three hundred dollars. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Th there's some guy who somehow came across a trove of Sierra game of online systems and Sierra games, um, and uh, like Jawbreaker was up there. Yeah. And they all go for a lot of money. Yep. So like, I've noticed in general. I don't know why. It seems to me that in the last six months, the Apple II stuff on eBay seems to have gotten more expensive. Apple IIs themselves, Apple II accessories, it just seems to me that, like, you used to be able to pick up an Apple IIe on eBay for, like, 15 20 bucks if you wanted to, or some or a 2GS sometimes, and, and they seem to, I don't, I, I don't know, I haven't looked closely, it just, or accessories, too, it just seems like a lot of accessories are, like, uh, starting at 100 bucks, and it just seems strange to me. Yeah, I think it's, it's that's one of the, the phenomena of, of eBay, where, you know, somebody lists it at $200 instead of $15 like it was last month and people come in and they see it and go oh that's what it's worth and they pay it and then the sellers yep. go oh somebody paid for it so that must be what it's worth and that's what they listed at sure it's interesting I was uh, at a vintage book fair here in New York a couple weeks ago and I, I I don't typically go to that to that sort of thing but I was with a friend who does and she was saying everything's expensive now because essentially the internet and eBay has essentially established what the market... You can't get deals because everyone knows what everything's worth to some right. extent. Yeah, which is why I miss the thrift store sales that I used to be able to get around here for Apple II stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, basically, you can still win on eBay by stumbling across a mislisted item, something that's in the wrong category, yeah. doesn't have the right search terms. It's pretty you know, rare but, these days. Yeah, I know. Well, there was somebody recently looking to get a deal for her Apple II, and she brought it on the History Channel TV show Pawn Stars. Have either of you seen this? No. I have. I watch Pawn Stars regularly, so I, I got to see that episode. It was pretty good. Yeah, I've, I'd never seen it before, but I was alerted to the Apple II's appearance on the show, and it's set in Las Vegas, and it's a reality show, and this woman brought her Apple II GS in with boxes and manuals and a lot of discs that didn't look original, and she wanted about 300 bucks for it. And the pawnbroker is saying, are you kidding? I'm going to sell this to somebody who's going to turn it into an aquarium. I'll give you 50 bucks for it. Wow. He came across to me as uh, dripping with contempt for the Apple II, but then it was pointed out to me that this is a businessman. He needs to buy low and sell high. Oh, yeah, of course. His job is to make it sound valueless. Right. So I had to remember not to take his criticisms personally. <laughs> he talks about, about a lot of stuff like that. Uh, on there that you would think would be you know worth a whole lot of money but like you said it's because he's trying to get some value out of it too i've noticed in particular apple II pluses seem to be going for more money on ebay than they had been like typically apple twos would always you know kind of fetch a fair price because they're rare but apple II pluses you know were were not much more expensive if at all more expensive than apple IIe's. but now you see them pretty regularly for 150 and up well this apple II gs on pawn stars ended up going for 100 bucks they shook on it and if you wait until the very end of the episode, about a half hour later during the credit sequence, you see the pawnbroker who was d dismissing it previously playing the game Thexter. And he was awesome. and he, he wasn't very good at it. He kept saying, I got to play this again. <laughs> but a, 
But apparently the story didn't end with the episode because the woman who sold the 2GS apparently regretted getting such a low price for it, and they allowed her to take her Apple 2GS back, and then she was able to put it on eBay, and this time she could advertise it saying, the Apple 2GS as seen on Pawn Stars. Wow. And this time she got about uh, at least $300 for it. That's bonkers. I don't know if that's what it was worth. Like I said, it was a pretty comprehensive system, and it was proven to work. Sure. I, I was bummed the other day. I was um, Somebody listed a 2GS on eBay, and he's like, yeah, it's 2GS, no cables, no nothing, no monitor. It's got some kind of card in it. I don't know what it is. And I saw the card, and it was actually like a uh, a 4 meg RAM card. And I'm like, I got to buy that thing. And then I just forgot about it, sadly, and the whole thing went up going for like $15. Because 4 meg RAM cards typically go for like, you know, a couple hundred bucks on eBay. They cost about what they did when they were new. Yeah. Uh, some things never change. Yeah, here's a here's an Apple II Plus I was actually just watching on eBay that closed for two hundred and twelve dollars, and I'm looking. Yeah, at this. that's what I'm talking about. Apple II Pluses did not get two hundred and twelve dollars. Yeah, I'm looking at this, ago. and for the life of me, there's nothing special about it. I mean, it's clean. It's it's in nice shape, but other than that, right. It was funny. I I uh, was uh, recently talking to the son of a friend of mine. He's eighteen, and he's a huge Mac person, and all that, but he'd never seen an Apple II, and he was in our office, and we still have our family Apple II. I, I have our family Apple II Plus in our office, just not operating, but just there for, for, for spiritual goodness. And, uh, and and he was fascinated by it, just like it, it, it really looked exotic to him, and like he could take off the lid and look at the board, and he's like, wow, there's all that space inside. Yeah, it's funny. How well do you know your Apple soundtrack? See if you can name the game. Thank you to everybody who entered in our first Name the Game contest. We had several contestants who are all eligible because it is not just the first person who enters. It is anybody who listens to Name the Game being between the first and the second episode is eligible. And again, here is the sound clip from that first episode. And Mike, I believe you said you knew what that was? That would be Karatika. That is correct. Jordan Mechner's Karatika, a predecessor to Prince of Persia. And that was probably too easy because everybody who entered got it right. And so I put all the names into a hat. I drew one out. And the winner is, coincidentally, Wade Clark, the author of Lead Light, the Eamon Adventure. Congratulations, Yay. Wade. Yay, Congratulations, Wade. Wade. I'll be in touch with your prize. And we have a new Name the Game contest. Here it is this month. Send your guesses to name the game at open-apple.net or go to our website, click contact, and fill out the form there. Entries must be in by April 1st. Anything received after April 1st is not eligible. Anybody in the entire world is eligible. And feel free to give us where you're from. And if we'll mention your name as the winner, if you are the winner, or if you don't want your name mentioned, just let us know. And what will you be winning? That is a free two-day pass to Vintage Computer Festival East 7.0. Wow. Donated to us by Evan Koblenz of March. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Evan. And as long as we're talking about games, there's a uh, something I want to correct from our previous episode. 
I had said that when Andy and I went up to Fun Spot of Laconia, New Hampshire, we played the first ever game to make the transition from computer to arcade, that being Dan Gorland's Choplifter. And one of our listeners, Alex Lee, emailed me to say it was actually Load Runner was the first game to make that transition. And as far as I know, he is correct. Load Runner by Doug E. Smith made the transition from Apple II to Arcade an entire year before Choplifter. Now, maybe there was something else even before that, and I'm going to be corrected again, which I welcome your feedback on. But thank you, Alex, for setting us straight. Uh, I actually almost did mention Load Runner in the last episode because FunSpot has a Load Runner arcade unit. But it just isn't as good as the Apple II version, in my opinion. The Apple II Load Runner is really, you know, like one of the top three ever. It's just an amazing game. Yeah, and one of the reasons I like that version is because the entire gameplay fits on on one field. I guess back then they didn't have the technology for scrolling levels right. like Mario Brothers later right. had. But when you add scrolling levels to Load Runner, it just doesn't work. I agree. I mean, the, the the appeal of Load Runner is that it was as much an action game as it was solving a puzzle, and somehow being able to, I think, visually conceive of the puzzle you're trying to solve on one screen, I agree, is, is part of the fun. Right. You need to see the whole puzzle so that you know how the pieces fit. Yeah. And also the fact that Load Runner came with a level editor was just also awesome. I think I, it had to have been one of the first games to ever do something like that. The ability to be creative in a game like Load Runner with a level designer is uh, fantastic, and it's something that continues to this day, especially with the game Minecraft, which, have either of you played? I have not. Neither have I. I've heard so much about it, but I haven't actually tried it. It seems pretty addictive, and it's also, I think, partly a Memorpiga, or massively multiplayer online RPG, and maybe that's why I haven't tried it, because I never have played one of those before. But anyway, Minecraft basically lets you mine these different resources and use them to build anything you want and it's almost like 3d lego because all the pieces are very blocky the graphics are actually kind of low res but nonetheless people are just fascinated by the creativity that it allows and steve wyrick uh who runs the apple II history website played minecraft and he had created the old school apple logo with the rainbow of colors in large scale and I asked him, what is he going to do next? And he had his answer a few weeks later when he actually built a huge replica of the original Apple II. And it's so big that in the game, you can actually walk around inside it. That's awesome. It is. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen, ever. Wow. i got to check that out. <laughs> yeah, he did a nine-minute tour set to music, and he showed us... Here are the floppy drives, here's the processor, here's the expansion port. Let's go up the ladder and take a look at the monitor. That sounds fun. It is. It, it's almost enough to make me want to play the game myself. Uh, apparently he had some trouble getting authentic colors on some of the units because I guess to get just the right shade he would have to like uh, collect all this wool and dye it in the right colors and it would just take forever. Oy vey. I think a little lack of authenticity is permissible under those conditions. Uh, I, I agree. And speaking of web games, Mike, you've been playing Ultima online? Yeah, I came across uh, a version of Ultima 4 that's been ported to Flash, actually. Uh, so you can play the whole thing in your browser. And looking at it, it looks like it's based on the IBM PC version rather than the uh, Apple II version of Ultima 4. But uh, the neat thing is you can close out anytime you want and come back to it. And as long as you don't clear your web history, uh, it picks up right where you left off. That's pretty oh, cool. Um, it saves your game. That's fantastic. It does. It saves your it game. Is. And they, they have a leaderboard on there, actually, for how many moves it took you to completely beat the game. That's cool, too. Um, and so far, there are only three people listed here 
Um, and it looks like the shortest number of moves was 47,505. If you ever wanted to know how many moves it takes you to beat Ultima 4, you can go here. Yeah, I played Ultima 4 on the 8-bit Nintendo, where it was called Ultima 2, Quest of the Avatar. Oh, interesting. And I'm pretty sure that there's a freeware version of Ultima 4 called XU4, which is open source, I think, and you can download it for a variety of platforms. And one of the benefits of that version is that it actually has all the different uh, graphic tiles that were used in all the different versions. So you can switch out which one you want. So if you're familiar with the Nintendo version, you can make XU4 look like the Nintendo version or the Apple II or the 8-bit black and white Mac or whatever. Now that's cool. So we'll have a link to the place where you can play uh, Ultima 4 in Flash in the show notes. In other Apple II gaming-related news, Armchair Arcade is running a series of blog entries. Uh, Chris Kennedy is actually playing through the King's Quest series, starting from uh, King's Quest 1 all the way up through the last one. Um, it looks like he's using the IBM PC versions uh, of the game rather than the Apple II, but I thought that it was kind of neat. Um, and this is actually similar to a project I saw a couple of years ago where somebody played through the Ultima series starting at, at Calabath and going all the way through. And I know in his case, he used uh, Apple Win and a couple of other emulators for the early versions of um, um, of Ultima. Hmm. That's very cool. I just found a blog of a guy who's playing the RPG, The Magic Candle. And I don't know if it's his first time through, but he's writing an extensive blog with his experiences. And it's just fascinating to see somebody discovering these old games, even if it isn't for the first time, just rediscovering them. Indeed. Hmm. You know, I was reminded of King's Quest recently because the... Uh, 25th Game Developers Conference was held this past week in San Francisco. You may recall that Jason Scott was hired on a contract basis as their historian. Uh, regardless, there was a game on display there called Sword and Sorcery. I am not mispronouncing that, Sword and Sorcery. And it is for iOS devices, and it looks a lot like a point-and-click adventure, and the graphic style, it's very intentionally pixelated, and it reminds me a lot of the very early King's Quest games. Well, that's very interesting. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I guess they demonstrated it a year ago, and back then it was actually just a proof of concept, and a lot of people started talking about, oh, I hope the game is like this, or I hope it does that. Usually feedback like that comes too late to incorporate into a game, but since they were showing not a beta, but just a proof of concept, they were able to incorporate all that feedback and actually make the game that people were asking for. Well, I know that uh, several uh, adventure games have actually showed up on iOS recently. It seems like a perfect medium for a point-and-click adventure. Absolutely. I'm told that Sword and Sorcery actually won't play like King's Quest, but it doesn't change the fact that it definitely looks like it. Huh. Okay. Uh, it might be on display this coming week at PAX East, which is the annual Penny Arcade Expo held in Boston. That's something that I'll be going to with Andy, who was on our show last time, as well as Wayne, an Apple II user who I've met at Kansas Fest before. And it's a three-day event uh, hosted by the creators of the webcomic Penny Arcade. And it is an opportunity for anybody, not just members of the press or the industry, to go and uh, play games that are out, play games that are coming out, see what's new, uh, compete with each other, and attend a variety of panels and sessions about the history of video games, how to break into the video game industry, how to fund your game design project. And Andy and I went last year, and we were just overwhelmed by the number of topics that were of interest to us. And I'm sure we're going to miss several things this year because it's just so much to see. Well, that sounds like a, quite a fun weekend. I wish I could join you. 
Yeah, I wish you could too. You probably enjoy the many events that they're having about interactive fiction. They have an entire suite set up where they're going to have things going on like Parsley Adventures, which were played at the Kansas Fest Banquet in 2010. They're going to have an introduction to Inform, which is a text adventure programming language. Weren't you recently looking into doing some Inform programming, Mike? Uh, no. Oh, you tweeted about it. Yeah, I, well, I, I took a brief look at it. It's it's way too advanced for what I have time to sit down and actually learn. So Maybe if you ever have the opportunity to attend PAX, you can go to the Lightning Introduction Session, which is what they're calling it. Hmm, sounds like fun. Speaking of interactive fiction and iOS, I came across uh, uh, Frots for iOS, which allows you to play a series of interactive fiction games on your iPad. I have, I think, run Frots on every platform it runs on at one point. Yeah, or me too. Now, I've not tried this on the iPhone because I don't have one. Um, but uh, the, this particular client on the iPad, is, it's actually pretty neat because it, it includes a sort of a, a server where you turn the server on on the iPad, then you log into it from your PC, and then you can load in .dat or .z file uh, interactive fiction games. So it, it comes with uh, like 20 or 30 uh, freeware games. If you have the um, the Lost Classics uh, Infocom games that, that Activision released, they come with the .dat or .z files on them, and then you can just transfer them and play them directly on your iPad. Well, that about wraps it up for Open Apple this month. This has been a lot of fun, guys. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, it's been great having you, Ivan. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is I, I, talking about Apple II is certainly among my favorite things to do, and so thanks for having me on. And we hope to continue the tradition of having a different guest on each show and having a variety of listeners. Uh, we are now listed on the Apple iTunes store, which we were not when the first episode aired. And we are also, uh, I don't think we're available in the Zoom marketplace, but if you go to our website, there is a Zoom subscription option there, courtesy Olivier Gunnar, who is one of our listeners and requested that feature. Thank you, Olivier. And you can also get us on the Kindle, but that is just the blog, not the podcast, and it's not free, which it should be because we don't charge for this show. Uh, feel free to check out our website, open-apple.net. Feel free to send feedback at podcast at open-apple.net. And Ivan, what are you going to be up to in the, until I see you at VCF? I am probably going to be working. That's most of what I do these days. Um, but uh, I am also in preparation for Kansas Fest. I'm hoping to do a presentation really about how to do Apple II file serving using a modern computer, using a virtual machine on a Mac or a PC, uh, setting up a, a Linux server running that ATOC, but making it really easy. So that's, uh, that's sort of where my Apple II-related energy is focused right now. Well, I'll try not to give you many assignments for JuiceGS in the meantime. Uh, you, you, you can assign me. We'll see what you get. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being on the show, and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, we'll, I, I will look forward to seeing you. Thanks, right. Ivan. All right, thanks. Uh, talk to you later, Mike. Bye. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our newsletter, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net.